Genesis chapter 26. So we've seen several things uh, develop, and currently uh, we have watched as the shift has come over to Isaac from uh, Abraham, and the attention is now focused on the son, Isaac, rather than on the father, Abraham. In Genesis 26, verse 1, there was a famine in the land. This is the promised land where he is besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and Gerer. Now, this Abimelech, again, is a title. Uh, oftentimes when we read the ancient writings, we see, you know, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's the king. You know, the title Pharaoh is uh, not his name. It's his title. It's his role. Uh, here, Abimelech is his role. That's part of his title. So this isn't a previous Abimelech that we've read about. This is the current king of the Philistines and Greer. In verse 2, it says, The Lord appeared to him, meaning Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Now, verse 2 is significant for Isaac because this is the first time, apparently, that we can tell that he's had this appearance of the Lord directly to him. We've had other indications of the Lord's influence and work and the situations being unfolded by the Lord for Isaac even specifically, but we haven't seen that the Lord, you know, that the scripture recorded that the Lord appeared to him. It's significant. Uh, I think that, you know, as parents, as individuals, uh, we should understand the importance of such a verse the personal appearance, the personal relationship with the Lord. It's very easy to ride someone else's coattails. If mom and dad are especially Christian and the household is especially Christian, you can skate along on that for quite a ways. You know, many young people don't realize that they aren't strong in the Lord until they get to college until they step out on their own, until they start raising a family and they realize, I don't have a handle on this myself. This, this isn't something that belongs to me. Uh, many of us do it uh, personally. Our circumstances, our spouse, our life is sort of focused around those things. Then the crisis, the challenge comes and we have to rely upon the Lord and we suddenly realize, I don't have the faculties that are needed here. The place to realize that is before the crisis. In, in the time where preparation is much easier. You know, here, uh, when you come to this moment of famine and you watch the reactions of Isaac, we see that there's a certain degree of preparation and then there's also a certain degree of weakness that is exposed. I think that's very telling for us as to how it works in our own lives in the same way. The Lord appears to him, tells him, don't go to Egypt. You'll remember that in the life of Abraham, his father, Abraham did go to Egypt. When the famine was on the land, when the crisis came, he went to Egypt. And there were really bad circumstances that unfolded from that. Now, here, there's going to be some challenging circumstances but he hears the Lord say, don't go. Dwell in this land, verse 3 says, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I give all these lands. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. Stay here. Don't move on. Don't look for other resources. Trust me in these circumstances and I will bless you. Now, Isaac has seen that blessing work in his father's life. If you've never had these experiences, never seen these things unfold, even in someone else's life, it might be more difficult for you to trust. It, you know, I, I've had many conversations uh, with people who 
you know, didn't really walk in faith, but they were raised in a Christian home. And now that they're in their own marriage, their own circumstances and situations begin to unfold, it's a little easier for them to begin to rely upon the Lord personally. You know, the person who's not had any upbringing in the faith, has no understanding of God, hasn't, you know, cracked a Bible once in their life, now beginning to walk in faith, has really big challenges to learn all of these things and to learn how they apply. Isaac has the benefit of his father's example and how to follow the Lord, how to hear from the Lord and how to walk. There's a great application for us as parents to help our young people grow and know the Lord in these circumstances. Here in verse 4, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We've heard this several times now through Abraham's life, and now it's coming to Isaac. It's interesting how the critics tend to just fall silent. They don't, you know, print retractions, unfortunately. You know, when they have uh, criticized the Word of God for centuries, and then the Word of God is proven to be true, they don't step forward and publish books about how they were wrong. Uh, this statement about how the descendants of Israel would be as innumerable as the stars, we hear in other places that they will be as innumerable as the sands of the sea. And, uh, you know, there was a point in man's history where literally the pseudo-scientists of the day developed for themselves grids, like square maps, that they would lie under at night and count all the stars in that square and then all the stars in that square and then all the stars in that square. And night after night, they would count the stars in the sky and they came up with a total of slightly over 6,000 stars in the sky. And there were great arguments. It was interesting because there were great arguments about how many stars there actually were. And then later, you know, in their wisdom and intelligence, they discovered that, you know, the discrepancies actually had to do with people's vision. You know, some people had poor eyesight and were saying, no, there's only 4,000 because they could only see the brighter of the stars. And the opinions of men, men arguing with men about the opinions of men. God is saying that the descendants of Israel are going to become as innumerable as the stars of the sky, and they have billions, billions of people down through history. You know, they mocked this passage saying, well, look, look, you know, look at how many millions there have been of Israel, and there's only 6,000 stars. That's a ridiculous thing. God didn't know what he was talking about. And then they catch up with God's wisdom over time. That's inevitably the way it works. Man catches up with God's wisdom. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, verse 5, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, I don't know about you, but I find verse 5 very encouraging. Because have you let, read the life of Abraham? He didn't do a wonderful job in keeping God's orders and statutes. He didn't do a wonderful job in being obedient to the Lord. He doubted and he faltered and he failed along the way. And how does the Lord credit him? With perfect obedience. It's a wonderful thing. Why? Because it's grace. It's not a lie. God is saying, in this man's frailty, in his sinfulness... In his weakness, he was trying to obey me. He was trying to follow me. I, I was setting out the rules, and he was trying to follow, right? I said, circumcise everyone in your household. He did that. You know, eventually it gets to the place where in the beginning, he's not obeying the Lord when the Lord says, don't go to Egypt. But by the end, he's immovable in his relationship with the Lord and following the things that the Lord says in his life. 
It isn't that God is measuring by the end, right? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's what the scripture says. As we sit here this morning, I'm, I'm encouraging you all to grow and mature and change and become more and more obedient to the Lord. I'm not trying to give us all a pass and say, don't worry about it. Go ahead and screw up as much as you want to. God will just consider you righteous anyway. It comes down to believing God. Believing God's capabilities. Trusting in Him. To the degree that we fail, thank God for His mercy. Thank God for His grace. It's a wonderful thing. Consider in that how you might treat others. right? Because we love God's grace when it's being poured out on us. But when you've offended me, I'm merciless. I hold someone to a perfect standard in my sinfulness when God in his perfection pours his grace and mercy out on me. I'm ever thankful for that. You might want to reflect the character of your heavenly father. 26 verse 6 says, So Isaac dwelt in Gerir. The men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, She is my sister. Wow. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought lest the men of this place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. Now, here's the thing. I just threw out that little quib, right? Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's something we commonly say. And, and by implication, we're saying that the children will be like the parents. That the behaviors will follow after the example of the parents. Now, some of you just like sank into deep meditation right then as I said that. Literally, people were looking at me and went, oh, man. The thought that your child is going to follow in your footsteps and in your example. That's, that's a heavy consideration. That the Lord would have, you know, or we would have the same behavior in our children. There's a couple of things to look at. The church has developed over the centuries a teaching that is now referred to as generational curses. And I just want to say right in the front end, and I'll walk us through it, that that's a false teaching. Okay, It, it comes from Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, where we read, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. From that, the churches said generational curses. That, you know, as a father does, so will the son do, so will the, you know, grandson, great-grandson, third and fourth generation. That's not what Numbers 14, 18 is saying. It's more along the principle of what we say in the New Testament. Be not deceived that what you sow you'll also reap. God is not mocked. What you sow you'll also reap. The things we do in our sinfulness affect our children. You can't, you can't think, you know, why does my child have to suffer for the things I've done? Well, the simple answer is stop doing the things you're doing. Because when we have consequences to face, everyone that's in our influence gets to experience them with us. Yeah, yeah, I've sat with many, the man and woman, who wept over the effects of, of their sin on their family. Their irresponsibility, their anger, their drunkenness, and how it has affected their children. And the way it has destroyed their family. There are obvious outcomes to sin in an individual's life. The idea that your child is automatically going to sin in the way that you sin is not biblical. Now, we're all human, so there's going to be a similarity in 
our sinfulness, number one. Number two, what children see they're also and hear, they're also going to emulate. They're going to copy. They're going to mimic. Look, if Isaac is watching Abraham lie about Sarah and say, she's my sister, and they're getting huge wealth at the same time, right? As they're being ushered out of the land, the king is pouring wealth and goods upon them. To a certain degree, Isaac is not only saying, not only was that not negative, it actually played out to the positive. He's being left with the sinfulness acting as a guiding force in his life. So to correct this issue of generational curses, I would ask you to put your bookmark in Genesis and turn with me to Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. I would ask you on your own, we're going to concentrate on a handful of verses. I would ask you on your own to put a bookmark here in Ezekiel chapter 18 and study this passage for yourself. Because it's important. Doctrinally, it's important for your children. For your children. And we'll look at why. Ezekiel 18, looking at verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel speaking, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. The Lord is saying, I don't want to hear that come out of your mouth again. He's saying to an entire nation, I don't want to hear you say generational curses one more time. Not one more time. He gets into great explanation and we'll look at it, right? I said the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If we're the apple that has fallen from the tree and we're making excuses from myself, look, people do this and maybe you do it, right? You're Irish. You're hot-blooded. Fly off the handle. Punch people in the nose. And you make the excuse. I'm Irish, right? That's the way I behave. I think almost every single culture uses this, right? We're Filipinos. We drink a lot. What do you want to do? You know, you know, we're Brazilian. We're promiscuous. Get over it. You know, your nationality, your heritage, doesn't have anything to do with your sinfulness. You know why you sin? Because you sin. You choose to sin. I choose to sin. That's what the scripture tells us. It's not mom's fault. It's not dad's fault. Well, actually, will I've watched my parents sin for decades in the way that I sin. So what? You have to make the choices. And here, hear this, parents. At what point do you want to start correcting the kids? Right? Like, oh, they're too little. We can't begin now. Really? So let's wait until they're 15? Before you stop that rage in their heart? Where, where you want to stop that? You want, to, you want to stop it once it's become a, a full-blown freight train? That's impossible to stop? Or how about we start correcting it in the beginning? You say, well, I got no room. And people do this directly, indirectly. I got no room to correct them because I have this flaw myself. No, that actually gives you greater room. Well, I continue to have this flaw. Thanks for bringing it up. That gives you even greater room. You understand the failure you can look at it and declare it to be a flaw. Your anger, the way you behave, it needs to be corrected. You can't just let these things go. That's how we are as a family. We're incredibly sinful. So what? Cut it out. This is what God is saying to the nation of Israel. Why, why do you guys say this? The fathers have eaten sour grapes. Therefore, the children's teeth are set on edge. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Stop making excuses. Each generation needs to be responsible 
for its own conduct. Look back at Ezekiel with me. Drop right down to verse 19. The Lord says, Yet you say, Why should the Son not bear the guilt of the Father? Because the Son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not bear the guilt of the Father, nor the Father bear the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? God wants repentance in the hearts of the parents, the adults, the grandparents, and the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. Every generation is responsible for its repentance, for turning away from its sin. Isaac is responsible. Abraham is not responsible for the, the fact that Isaac is currently lying. Yes, Abraham did this same sin. It's not a percentage less for Isaac because Abraham left him a poor example, right? God's going to hold Isaac 100% accountable for his failure. At no point do you get to use the parental sin as a legal defense. Your failure is your failure. And I'll tell you, young people in the room, that especially is poignant for you. Because if you're seeing your parents and you see their flaws, that isn't an excuse for you to say, well, mom and dad did it. And after all, they were Christians. If you can look at the word of God and you can see our weakness, that's your responsibility to seek the Lord all the more. Think about that, young people. If your parents here in this room are declaring themselves to be believers and they're struggling like that, how much more should you be seeking the Lord regarding your own conduct? It's difficult. It's challenging. We want to walk with the Lord. We don't want to emulate the failures that have gone before us. Back in Genesis 26, picking up at verse 8, it says, Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window, sort of accidentally, and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Now this isn't the king spying and seeing something inappropriate, or Isaac and Rebekah doing something that's unmentionable here. It's just that the affection that was being shown between Isaac and Rebekah, it was clearly not the affection that would be shown between a brother and sister. And Abimelech is left with, wait a second. This is not brother and sister conduct. This is only husband and wife conduct. What is going on here? And Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said, because I said, lest I die on account of her. Now there is a little bit of a blame game going on there. A little bit. It's not huge, but there's a little bit of a blame game. She's just so stinking beautiful. I knew you'd kill me. You know. It's really her fault for being so beautiful. It's ridiculous. It's spineless. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. See, therein is the thing. His fear of men caused it to be that he did not trust the Lord 
for his safety. And honestly, that's a lot of what we contend with. When we're trying to share our faith and we're afraid of, these people are probably going to sneer at me. Oh, wow, that would be horrible. You know, that's a lot like being crucified. You know, being mocked. Our fear causes us to not trust God and do what we should. We fear how our peers will act. We fear how men will react. And we curb our behavior. Consider the Lord will give us strength. 26 verse 10, Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? Notice that. You've done to us. What is this you've done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife. Now, what's the big deal there? Right? In our modern culture. I mean, people sleep around all the time. No big deal. This is where our culture has gone. Notice how dramatically, listen, a pagan king classifies this behavior. It's unfortunate that a pagan king has to see things with greater spiritual clarity than a child of God. That's tragic. When, when a pagan can say, this is wrong, and the believer in the circumstance hasn't even conducted themselves properly. Someone might have soon lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us all. This pagan king understands fornication is sin. Fornication is wrong. It's something that can't be done. Verse 11, so Abimelech charged all his people saying he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death that actually tells you the mindset of abimelech when isaac came into the territory if this was actually his fear then the godly approach would have been to find a way to have the authorities put some kind of protection on him. God is on his side. If he's going to go through this properly, it's going to be to take the steps to, in order to be godly, not in order to find a way to be sneaky in the process. He's causing problems through his lying. 26 verse 12 protection order on his life, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. So the guy with the beautiful wife who now has special protection from the king, is beginning to prosper in their midst, and they are bugged by it. It's the way of the world to hate the believer no matter what. Even if you haven't necessarily done them any wrong directly, they're not going to be friendly towards us. John chapter 15, verse 19 Jesus speaking, said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's a, a really treacherous thing to have it in your heart that you want the world to love you. That you want to get along with the world. Don't get me wrong. Paul said, as much as it is your responsibility, live peaceably with all men everywhere. Right? It's our responsibility to be as friendly as possible. But don't be surprised when you've been as friendly as possible and there's still animosity being returned. Okay, Your friendliness as a believer is going to win a whole bunch of people over. But there's still going to be people who hate you and are jealous of you. 
There's nothing you can do about that. You, you do your best, and then you have to just say, oh, well, on a lot of the other circumstances. 26.15, it says, Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which were his father's, which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they filled them in with earth. Uh, building a well in this culture was very difficult, very labor-intensive, very expensive uh, to do, and then it established you in a territory. So if you had flocks and herds and you were trying to say, this territory is where I want to live, having a well made it such that, you know, there's during the winter and the rainy season, there's, they call, you know, wadi, where it's a dry riverbed and then the rain would come and there would be rivlets of water that the sheep and your cattle could get into. But during the dry seasons, it would take them out into pasture and then bring them back to the well and out into pasture and back to the well. The well was critical to being able to support life in the land. You had to have, so in stopping up the wells, they're essentially saying of Abraham, he no longer owns this territory. He was here, and yes, we know who his son is, but he doesn't lay claim to any of this anymore. It was a massive statement on their part to shut off that life support system in the region. 26.16, And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you're much mightier than we. Sounds odd, but it's actually logical. When Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Greer and dwelt there. You know, we don't want you around. It's gotten to the point where you know, your wealth, your influence is exceeding my own. I'm the king. I'm supposed to be the one who has the greatest influence on the land. And, you know, when you get as wealthy as it's being described here, literally you have massive amount of servants, massive amount of herdsmen. You know, we read about his father, Abraham. He'd come to the place where he had a security entourage of 318 trained soldiers. You know, I mean, does any of us know anyone that has 318 bodyguards? Uh, you're a very influential person if you've come to that place where you've got your own security detail that are trained soldiers. 318 men. He's growing to a similar place of influence. You know, you, you watch the movies, you see Hollywood's depiction of these men and the patriarchs, and you think of them as, you know, these small little band of nomadic wanderers, three, four, maybe ten people. This is a huge, uh, you know, cluster of people that has eclipsed the king and he's saying do me a favor and move someplace up go be a king someplace else i'm the king here and you're you know stealing my glory so off with you he's moving on verse 18 the fulfillment of the lord coming to pass and his blessing isaac dug again the wells of water which had uh, they had dug in the days of abraham his father for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. Most of the wells are what we would refer to as a cistern. So they dig in a low place and the water of the land is filtering into that place and this one, in contrast, is as they're digging, the thing suddenly bursts open and begins to fill up. They find a spring. That's a very rare find in this region. This running water is much more influential in all that it's capable of doing for a man with this level of prosperity. The same level of spiritual strength is available for the church today if we will seek in faith and commitment to find it. The things that blessed Abraham in the past are now available to his son. But he's got to put in the effort to find it. Listen, the church 
the church is not satisfied today with the things of the past. They, they want the new. They want the exciting. They want, you know, the relevant things. And as a, as a result of looking for those new things, they've been led horribly astray. Okay, you know, there, there are a, a number of situations around us. You know, you have certain churches like, uh, you know, uh, the Word of Faith movement. The old method of knowing and understanding God from the Word not satisfying to them. Got to have some kind of new experience. So they begin inventing things until it gets so bad following through the history of those churches that now you've got men inside those organizations that are literally saying they have the ability to communicate with the dead. That they themselves have eaten the physical flesh of Jesus Christ. They've encountered Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ gave them his flesh physically took his flesh and gave it to them. They're describing and creating things that are unbiblical. Now, now here's where it may be a shock to you. Those influences, now, you know, uh, not so extreme as that, but some of the early phases of it, Hillsong, Bethel music, Jesus culture, you know, elevation worship. All of that is from those churches. Experiential. Got to experience something new, something fantastic. You know, so that when you're listening to Hillsong's music and it says, you know, so will I, the song, so will I, God breathed and, you know, billions of creatures came to life and evolved according to God's purpose from there. Evolution being introduced into the music, the thought, the mind. Because you've got to go the new way. You've got to follow the culture, not the scripture. If we're willing to go through the effort and dig into God's word, you're going to find the wellspring of life that is contained here. Look at this, Jeremiah 6.16. Look at this verse. Thus says the Lord... Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Find the old paths. You, you want the depth of spirituality? You're sitting here this morning saying something's missing from my life. Look back to the men in history. Look back to the women. Look back to Amy Carmichael. Look back to Spurgeon. Look back to the people of depth and dig in the same places they did, and you're going to find the richness of God's Word. And eventually, if you dig right, John 7, verses 37 through 39, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the same thing that's being said in Genesis 26, verse 19. A well of running water, living water, moving water. Not a collection point, something that flows out. You dig in the same spots that Spurgeon dug, and you'll find things that will spring up, and you can then nurture the church. You can then feed the body of Christ. Your, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he was speaking with John chapter thirty, or John chapter seven, verse thirty-nine. But this Jesus was speaking concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The depth in your life, my life, that is needed is the Holy Spirit, not some experience. You know, the church is so concentrated on, you know, we need to develop all these other things in order to get 
out of our faith what we need. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've described being in churches like that and like the worship team was just ridiculous, phenomenal, amazing show. You know, the pastor's sermon and the PowerPoint and all the different stuff and, you know, nothing wrong with those things, but I get done and I walk away and go, what did I learn? Nothing. I didn't, I didn't gain anything out of it. The depth that is needed. Isaac is digging in the same spots and the Lord is blessing him. 26.20, it says, But the herdsmen of Gerir quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they quarreled with him. Then he dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. He called its name Sitna. He moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So the well's names in order, contention, and then opposition, and then lastly, spacious or enough room is what he was saying you know in all of these other occasions the crowding in causes there to be contention and he finally gets to a place that is his own and he's able to grow and prosper the way that the lord wants him to i think that's significant for us to understand that the lord wants us to continue to progress until that place of peacefulness settles in in our relationship with him, the fulfillment of these things. 26.23, then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So again, Isaac's father Abraham had many personal appearances in these you know, are some of the, the first that are occurring uh, for him on these occasions where he's hearing directly from the Lord. Verse 25, so it says he built an altar there and he called in the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him with Gerir and Ahazoth one of his friends, and Fickle, the commander of his army. So now that he's found this settling point, and he's begun to prosper, and he's built the altar to worship the Lord, and established his home in this place, these, uh, you know, the king and these influential leaders come to speak to him in verse 27. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. What a remarkable comment for these pagans to take note of. They are making note of God's influence in Isaac's life. And you're going to see they recognize that God's hand being on Isaac's life makes it that they should make peace with him. They have had conflict with him, and now it's come to the place where they recognize we need to make peace with this man. Notice how this unfolds. Excuse me. <clears throat> they said we've uh, certainly seen that the Lord is with you, so he said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us Make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. They, you know, paint themselves in the best light. Uh, they, they did send him away in peace. They didn't strip him of his possessions or his wealth and then kick him out. They just sent him on his way. Now, 
and they're wanting to make peace because they understand potentially the threat that he is to them uh, because of the influence of the Lord. Notice the peacefulness of Isaac. So he made them a feast, and he ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. The people of the land make a peace agreement with Isaac because of the Lord being with him. That's the same thing that happened with Abraham. He's now experiencing that same fruitfulness in his life. You know, we often say God doesn't have any grandchildren. Each generation needs to know the Lord for themselves. And that's absolutely true. But what you're going to discover is each generation that comes to know the Lord finds that they know the Lord in the same way that the previous generation did. He, again, that whole thing of the newness. We don't need to look for a new faith. We don't need to look to see you know, massive cataclysmic changes in doctrine and teaching and understanding of God and God's word. Each generation that finds the Lord is going to find him to be the same as he was previously. 26.32, it came to pass in the same day, and it does mean that, that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba, that is seventh, or the well of completeness is what he's saying. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba, which means well of an oath. Now, he's just taken an oath on that day, but it's also the fulfillment of God's oath to him, that the Lord's going to bless him and cause him to be fruitful and that his generations will be able to multiply. So this has a, a great deal of uh, impact on him. You think about the way at times uh, the Lord is saying certain things to you. You know, you get up, Perhaps you've been in some struggle and you're seeking the Lord and there it is. The Lord's given you the answer from his word and your time and prayer and you think that's wonderful. And you go out and you turn on the Christian radio and there's the same message coming to you. And then, you know, you go to Bible study that night and there it is again. God fulfilling his word, God bringing his promises, God showing you I'm here. You couldn't have orchestrated this. You couldn't have put all of these things together to cause them to be. The day that you're making this oath, you're finding this living water. The day that your servants are finding this well, you're finishing this relationship with these other people in order to prosper as the Lord has said to you here in the land. It's important to recognize the hand of the Lord and then to live by those things. Many people will see the blessing of the Lord. You know, we can sit here right now and go, yeah, I want to see that kind of thing happen for me. You know, the divine orchestration where I wouldn't be able to die, then I would live for the Lord. That's not true at all, right? The nation of Israel is led out of their captivity through the Red Sea. They're now on their way to the promised land. The first thing they do is begin to accuse Moses and God of bringing us into the wilderness to kill us. Like God couldn't have done that anywhere along the way. There were 10 plagues that took place inside the nation of Egypt. God could have killed the nation of Israel with any one of those. You know, he could have drowned them all together, you know, rather than the Egyptian army or with the Egyptian army. God could have orchestrated any number of circumstances. What they're saying is especially evil. My point is seeing the miraculous doesn't always cause the heart to be obedient. Here in this case, it's actually the contrary. It's the obedience of the heart that's causing this blessing to be unfolded. More than anything, while we see his weakness and his failure, you know, tell everybody you're my sister. At the same time, we see he was obedient and he did not go into the land of Egypt. There was a great difficulty, a tremendous famine upon the land it would have been easier to go to egypt where the famine wasn't as severe and instead he stays in the location where the lord is called him to the blessings are being fulfilled now a slight shift of gears to close the chapter in verse 34 
when Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Berai, the Hittite, Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Not, not uh, out of some judgmental sense of self-righteousness, out of the fact that uh, here, uh, you know, the the um, Esau during this time in, in taking these wives is fornicating and marrying women that are idolatrous from the land of Canaan. Uh, we hear in Genesis and Hebrews two statements. Genesis chapter 24, uh, verses 3 and 4, I will make you swear by the Lord, God of heaven, and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. The, the grievance of Esau taking wives in the family of God from the unbelieving world. That idolatry is going to pollute the bloodline of Abraham. We see again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. I gave both of these verses to us last week regarding Esau. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Esau is continuously showing us that his desire is for the sinful things of the world. And how he gets them is by direct rebellion against God. God is coming uh, to his family and saying, do not conduct yourself in this way. And Esau is saying, I don't care about any of that. I'm going to go get what I want. The powerful contrasting lessons here. You can see, as I described a moment ago, that in the life of Isaac, he is a man who is sinful and struggles to obey God. But he is trying to obey God with his life. Esau, in direct contrast, is a man who's heard the same messages and doesn't care. He's going to go get what he wants, and he's going to do it in direct rebellion to God. Let the example stand in your heart that the obedience to the Lord is where the blessing is. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we thank you. As difficult as it is to see these types of examples and understand the application to our own lives, help us to be men and women of obedience. Fill us with your spirit. Give us your strength. Help us to follow your will for our lives. Lord, I pray that it would be a blessing upon each of our lives and a testimony to the unbelieving world around us that they would see you, not necessarily materialism and things that we own, but they would see you in our lives and the prosperity that you are, the joy and the fulfillment that we have in you, and that they would be desirous of the same thing. Use us as your witnesses, your examples, your children, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.